Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, America's secret history continued, the Spanish-American War, and the creation of the Federal Reserve. No one in the last 107 years since the Federal Reserve has been enacted, including the president and any senator or congressman, has attended any Federal Reserve meetings. No minutes of the Federal Reserve has ever been released. It is a completely secretive organization run by completely private people to their own ends. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet conspiracy unlimited with richard serrett pursuing the truth wherever it leads exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Steve Harris is here for our ongoing series. The last time we discussed Manifest Destiny, the rapid expansion of the United States westward, we also discussed the assassination of Presidents Lincoln and Garfield, and this time around, the Spanish-American War and the creation of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. Steve Harris became fascinated with the JFK, RFK, and MLK assassinations beginning in his teenage years. Then came Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, released in the New York Times in 1971, clearly showing the entire Lyndon Johnson administration lied to the American public and Congress, causing the physical and moral devastation in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. That was all bad enough, but when George W. Bush and Dick Cheney overthrew a sovereign government with no weapons of mass destruction or proof of any terrorist activities by the Iraqi government, Stephen began his 17-year investigative reporting of the U.S. government. 
He's now proud to be able to present history buffs and the average book reader who's searching for answers, the truth behind the stories they don't want you to know. He's the author of America's Secret History, How the Deep State, the Fed, the JFK, MLK, and RFK assassinations, and much more led to Donald Trump's presidency. Stephen Harris, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited for part three of our ongoing series. How are you? Great to be back. I'm fine, Richard. We're going to look at the Spanish-American War right out of the chute here. To what extent was the Spanish-American War uh, an extension of Manifest Destiny? Well, Richard, it was more than the economy. It was the what the deep state that, that started back in the early 1800s in this country wanted to achieve. And it was um, uh, what I call power and wealth. And with Manifest Destiny, the God-given right to extend our borders. They, in the first uh, roughly half a century, they increased the number of states from 13 to 45. They increased the acreage of the country from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. Um, they had a war that that with with Mexico that created a good part of it. They took over, uh, I'm doing this from memory, Texas and Utah, New Mexico. Uh, Oklahoma and a couple of other states, I think. Um, and by the by the time uh, uh, James Garfield was assassinated, which we went over in the last uh, uh, episode, um, uh, they had achieved national territorial territorial expansion, and they needed new markets. Um, and that is the key to the deep state, to the PNW, power and wealth. They need markets. Markets not only give them strategic presence, uh, but give them more economic uh, power. And um, so by the time the 1800s uh, came along, uh, there was no place nationally to expand. And so then it had to become international. And they, uh, uh, the United States government offered Spain sometime in the late 1880s or the early 1990s, $100 million for Cuba, because Cuba was not only a gateway to the Caribbean, but it was a huge uh, uh, natural resource uh, um, economy. The sugar and the, and the tobacco, it, it was just huge. And the United States uh, 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 corporations already had some inroads in, into Cuba. The Spanish government refused, and it was just natural for the uh, uh, power and wealth, the deep state, uh, to go after usurping Cuba. And that's what the Spanish-American War was all about. Enter William Randolph Hearst. Who was this character, and, and what role did he play in the Spanish-American War? William Randolph Hearst was one of the um, uh, richest men in America, I'm sure the world. Um, and he owned uh, a newspaper in San Francisco. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. Uh, and then there was Joseph Pulitzer, who was also one of the wealthiest. And he owned, uh, I think it was the Daily, I think it was called the Daily News in New York. Oh, the, New York the New York World, for which oh, the, the, the World, World Series is named. Thank you. And the two of them, uh, as far as I'm concerned, with no proof, were uh, part and parcel to the deep state. The two of them started to inflame the American people against the Spaniards, and it was called yellow journalism. It was after a cartoon character. Um, and what they did was they started a campaign 
which the deep state uh, is known for its slogans um, and its fear. And they started to go against the Spaniards. Uh, they called them, both of them together. I mean, they were at odds with each other, but it was all for the same end. Spanish cannibalism, inhuman torture going on in Cuba. Um, and every day it was one atrocity after another what the Spaniards were doing to the uh, Cubans. And of course, a lot of it was true, no doubt about it. Uh, but the point is that they were trying to inflame uh, the American public against the Spaniards. And um, it all uh, came, to a, to, came to a conclusion when the uh, USS Maine, a United States warship on a friendly mission was docked in the harbor of Cuba. Um, and a huge explosion took place in the early morning. Um, 260 American sailors were killed. And that's when both uh, Pulitzer and Hearst and the American government uh, blamed Spain. Um, and of course, the reason was we wanted to go to war. Um, which we, which we did. And I believe those two newspapers you mentioned offered a sizable reward for the capture and arrest of the individuals responsible for blowing up the USS Maine. Definitely. Um, everything was done. Once the uh, uh, Maine blew up, the uh, deep state slogan, remember the main, remember now we have deep, we have slogans for, for everything in the last 125 years. We have the day of infamy for Pearl Harbor. Uh, uh, remember the main for the Spanish American war, the war on terror uh, after 9-11, uh, the axis of evil again after 9-11. One day after 9-11, we were uh, uh, George W. Bush uh, called the axis of evil of Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Desert Storm in 1991 for the Iraqi uh, war. It, um, uh, we went with the slogans, and um, uh, they learned this early. Give, give American people the you know, slogan and something to fear, and that's all they need. And that's all they needed for the Spanish-American War. What really happened? Because there's some suggestion that it was an accident. Others suggested it was a Spanish mine that led to the conflict. But what did your research conclude? Well, at the time, in 1898, there was no real investigation into it. It was just assumed. And between both Pulitzer and Hearst and the American government, just told that the Spanish blew up the, uh, uh, the Maine. But what they didn't realize was that there were no dead fish floating in the water uh, uh, after the main blew up. And that was the one big telling thing that, that, that said that it was not an external explosion. If it was, it would have been thousands of dead fish. In the late 20th century, there was a huge investigation by the US government. And it was concluded that the probable cause, cause of the loss of the main was a boiler problem. Now, we don't know, was the boiler problem sabotage or was it simply um, a problem with the boiler? The point was, is that it, it almost certainly was not the Spanish, Spaniards. Um, that's, the, that's the whole key. And yet it, it, it led uh, to, the, uh, to the takeover of five uh, uh, countries 
um, and um, war and a lot of power and wealth. So the deep state gets their wish and they go to war with Spain. The U.S. invades Cuba and Guam, Puerto Rico, the Philippines. Parts of the war went very smoothly and quickly. Others did not. Explain. For Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and Hawaii, it was over almost immediately. For the Philippines, it was over in like six hours. However, the Filipinos did not take to American uh, um, to the United States of America taking it over. And the revolutionaries who were, who were facing the Spaniards at the time uh, began against the, uh, uh, the United States. And that lasted four years to 1903, actually five years. Um, quarter, something like 4,500 American soldiers died and a, almost a quarter of a million Filipinos. Um, so yes, it was over almost immediately for, for those four, uh, countries, but not, not for the Philippines. How did the, the Cuban rebels feel about having their, their Spanish overlords overthrown? Were they, were they happy about U.S. occupation? No, they weren't. And the, the whole point was, was that, uh, uh, immediately, of course they were. But the problem was that the United States in, in its negotiations with Spain, for the end of the war, completely excluded the government of uh, uh, the revolutionary government of Cuba. They were excluded from the peace talks. The United States simply became their ruler and, and, and colonizer. And strangely enough, when the last Spanish troops departed Cuba, it wasn't a Cuban flag that was flying. It was the American flag that was uh, uh, hanging in, in, in Havana. Uh, the reason was the, the United States claimed that it did not enter the war to free Cuba. They entered the war because the Spaniards blew up the USS Maine. And so that was the excuse uh, that they gave uh, to the Cuban revolutionaries. So talk to me about the, the importance of uh, the Philippines, both economically and strategically to the United States. Well, in, in um, first of all, it, it was something like 800 miles, 700 miles, I forget, from the China mainland. And uh, that was, a, to, to be only seven or 800 miles from Asia was a huge strategic uh, development because uh, not only was it a great place to, to, to trade, to increase America's markets and to increase America's revenue, but to, to have to be within striking distance of the Asian continent, including Japan, was, was huge. In, in um, 1902, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Frank A. Vanderlip, who was soon to be the president of the National City Bank, and also one of the architects of the Federal Reserve, which I'd like to get to later on, uh, said, and I quote, it is as a base, speaking about the Philippines, it is as a base for commercial operations that the islands seem to possess the greatest importance. They occupy a favored location, not with reference to one part of any particular country of the Orient, but to all parts. Together with the islands of the Japanese empire, the Philippines are the pickets of the Pacific, 
and it goes on. But that's all I have to say about that. So, I mean, the Philippines would just tantamount to economic and strategic control, at least for the for for a small period of time, uh, of the Asian continent. All right. So about uh, well, a little over ten years after the the final conquest of the Philippines, the United States. Uh, enacts the Federal Reserve Act. It's signed into law December 23rd, 1913. Now, uh, last time we spoke about President Garfield, uh, who was assassinated just 100 days into his presidency in uh, the 1880s. And uh, you begin this chapter on the Federal Reserve with a quote from Garfield, which kind of serves as a, a warning about what would happen if a Federal Reserve would ever be instituted. He said, whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. Again, that was U.S. President Garfield warning about a central bank. And of course, that came almost 30 years after his assassination. But it turned out he was right, wasn't he? He was certainly right. And of course, Andrew Jackson, uh, which we talked about in the previous uh, uh, interview, was the uh, the beginning of the being against the central banks. You're 100% correct. That's exactly what James Garfield uh, said and, and believed. And it is true. Um, a central bank is simply designed by bankers and for the bankers. Central banks control the economy of a country. It, it, it enslaves a government in an endless expanding spiral of debt. And if you want to uh, uh, throw it off to today, I don't know exactly what the federal debt is today, but it is in the tens of trillions of dollars. And that is because of the central bank that we have or the Federal Reserve. In this particular instance, in this country, the Federal Reserve is what I consider to be the greatest conspiracy ever perpetrated on any country, on any citizens, because it is a private enterprise that controls, at least for the last 107 years, the economy, the finances, and the currency of our country, a private organization. And the best proof of that is that in 1982, in a federal circuit court, the Ninth Circuit Court, in the case of Lewis versus the United States, said that, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading parts of it, the Federal Reserve Banks are listed neither as wholly owned government corporations, nor as mixed ownership corporations. Additionally, reserve banks as privately owned entities receive no appropriated funds from Congress. Remember that, no appropriated funds from Congress. Finally, the banks are imposed to sue and be sued in their own name. They carry their own liability insurance and typically process and handle their own claims. In the past, the banks have defended against tort claims directly through private counsel, not government attorneys. For the, now, get this now. For these reasons, we hold that the, that the reserve banks are not federal 
agencies. That was a federal court in 1982. That was the ruling of a federal court in 1982. The passage of the Federal Reserve Act, December 23rd, awfully close to Christmas. (laughs) How many congressmen were actually present during Christmas break to vote on this thing? I forget the exact amount, Richard, but it was something like half because two days before Christmas, most had already gone. And although there's no proof of this, I have to assume that it was basically those senators who were part and uh, owned by the deep state uh, because all the others had just left for, for their Christmas vacation. It was passed, as you said, on December 23rd, and exactly one hour later, President Woodrow Wilson was waiting in his Oval Office, was waiting for the senatorial pages to present the, the bill, and he signed it into law one hour after, after being voted into law by the Senate uh, the night of December 23rd. I don't want to get too technical here, but the effect or the impact of the, the creation of the Federal Reserve, and so, so Congress was no longer responsible, or the, the U.S. Treasury, rather, the U.S. Treasury was no longer responsible for issuing money. It was now the Federal Reserve. But the introduction of something called the fractional reserve banking system, can you just explain that in very simple terms, how that worked? Yeah, it's very, as a matter of fact, I haven't seen, I'm not saying it hasn't been written about, but I've I've done a lot of research and I haven't seen any economist in the last 20 or 30 years writing about this. Fractional reserve banking allows the Federal Reserve Banks, which is every bank in the country, to take whatever percentage the Federal Reserve gives, it's usually around 10%. When someone takes out a loan, let's say you take out a, a, an auto loan for $40,000 from a bank. If the, if the fractional reserve percentage is 10%, which is, it usually is right around there, then a bank simply has to keep of that $40,000, 10% or $4,000. And it can take the existing 90%, which is $36,000, and loan that out. So... Banks are allowed to create money from nothing. They've loaned you $40,000 to buy a car, but then they can take 36000 approximately $36,000, and loan that out to someone else. So their assets increase by $36,000. I don't have it in front of me. It's in the book. But a Federal Reserve document back, I think, in the 80s, actually documents all this. It's in, it, it, it's in America's secret history. And it's, it's, it's really wild. And that's what, frac- that's in, in general, that's what fractional reserve banking is. Banks can create their own money. More of my conversation with Steve Harris when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. 
Time once again to say hello to Colleen Forgus, our nutritional therapist and the manager at Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Colleen, hello once again. How are you doing? Howdy, Richard. I'm doing great. Terrific. You know, as we get older, one of the first things that goes is our memory. Do you have anything at the Full Script Dispensary to help boost our memory? I do. It's actually called Brain Memory. It's by Douglas Labs. And this product is designed to support a healthy brain function by improving our production of acetylcholine, which helps to make sure that we have a sharp and um, good memory. Acetylcholine? Yeah, that's right. It's one of the main components of keeping our brain sharp. Terrific. Brain memory. All right, Colleen, I'll remember that. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks, Richard. To get your bottle of brain memory, go to strangeplanet.ca, then click on the Full Script Dispensary button. Remember, all orders receive 10% off, and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Stephen Harris, the author of America's Secret History, is here. We're talking about the creation of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank in December 1913. And now the United States government is basically borrowing money. In other words, the the Federal Reserve is giving the U.S. Treasury money. They have to then pay interest on that money that was essentially created out of nothing. And so the United States government starts to go into debt really in a significant way for the first time. Previously, yes, they had accrued debt because of wars and so forth, but they were able to pay that off as Andrew Jackson did paid off the debt completely. But exactly. now but now we are talking about huge amounts of money that the government has now at its disposal. They don't really have a means to pay it back other than tariffs, which is really how the government used to raise money. There used to be no income tax. So so now all of a sudden, really for the f- not the first time, but in the most significant way and permanently The United States imposes an income tax on its citizens. Talk to me about the 16th Amendment. Well, let me, yes, I will, but but, but let me backtrack just for for the time and tell everyone the the beginnings of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve Act was was instigated, was brought into law in 1913. Well, three years later, three years earlier, on the the evening of November 22nd, 1910, Senator Aldrich and A.P. Andrews, who was the Assistant Secretary of the United States Treasury, Paul Warburg, a naturalized German representing the investment firm of Kuhn Logan Company, Frank A. Vandelip, who I read a piece uh, uh, before, who, who was the president at the time of the National City Bank of New York, Henry Davison, the senior partner of J.P. Morgan, Charles Norton, the president of the Morgan-dominated First National Bank of New York, and Benjamin Strong, who was also representing J.P. Morgan. Those people left on a train from Hoboken, New Jersey, down to Jekyll Island in Georgia. Jekyll Island was a country club owned by the richest people in the United States and the world, the Astors, the Guggenheims, the Rockefellers. They owned this country club. It was a massive place where these people went on vacations and spent their free time. 
And they donated a week's worth of time to these seven gentlemen to go down there and formulate the Federal Reserve Act, which they did. Forbes magazine founder, Bertie Charles Forbes, wrote this about that meeting down there. Picture a party of the nation's greatest bankers stealing out of New York on a private railroad car under cover of darkness, stealthily riding hundreds of miles south, embarking on a mysterious launch, sneaking onto an island deserted by all but a few servants, living there a full week under such rigid secrecy that the names of not one of them was once mentioned. They knew who each other, who they were, but they never mentioned their names. Lest the servants learn the identity and disclose to the world the strangest, most secret expedition in the history of American finance. Remember, this is the founder of Forbes magazine. I am not romancing. I am giving to the world for the first time the real story of how the famous Aldrich, Senator Aldrich, currency report, the foundation of our new currency system, was written. The utmost secrecy was enjoined upon all. The public must not glean a hint of what was to be done. Senator Aldrich notified each one to go quietly into a private car of which the railroad had received orders to draw up on an unfrequented platform. And it goes on. This was, I mean, talk about a deep state. This was the seven people going to a place to enact a law that would take away all control of the United States currency, finances, and economy. And that is the basis of the Federal Reserve Act. Why do they call it the Fed? It's not owned by the government, as you point out. It's privately owned. Why do they call it the Fed? So that each of the 350 million current United States citizens will believe that when Powell, the the current chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, gets up in front of Congress or to to the media and says something, that those 350 million citizens will believe that that agency, the Federal Reserve, is a federal government agency. Yet in reality, as we know, it is completely private. The only thing that it has in common with the United States government is that the president of the United States does elect the chairman of the board and Congress does select the 12 Federal Reserve presidents. However, the president and Congress has absolutely nothing to do with the Federal Reserve once those people have been elected in. No one in the last 107 years since the Federal Reserve has been enacted, including the president and any senator or or congressman, has attended any Federal Reserve meetings. No minutes of the Federal Reserve has ever been released. A few weeks after a Federal Reserve meeting, they do release a summary of the minutes, but it is a completely secretive organization run by completely private people to their own ends. And yet, as you point out in the book, the Constitution is quite clear on this matter. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5 of the United States Constitution states only Congress can coin money and regulate the value of the money. Uh, And yet, as we've discussed, the Fed creates it out of thin air. So this Federal Reserve Act passed in December of 1913 is against the Constitution. It's entirely illegal. How did they go through without someone challenging it at the Supreme Court level? This is the deep state. You don't fight the deep state. Senator, I believe his name was Reibold in 1936, I might have the name wrong, brought up on the Senate floor 
what we're talking about right now. And he had two attempts made on his life. Senator Ron Paul from Texas, one of the greats, he has spoken before his retirement and even after post-retirement. He talked in, 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 in the Senate many times against the Federal Reserve. And he was lucky. He never had, a, had any attempts on his life. But it's really after the fact because now with the power that they, that they own, it, it, it really doesn't matter. Not one person has challenged this, not one in the Supreme Court, which is mind-blowing. Here's a, a something completely against the, the United States Constitution, whereas you just said, Article 1, Section B, Clause 5, clearly, clearly states that the Federal Reserve Act is completely unlawful, and yet not one person has brought it to the Supreme Court. To what extent was the Federal Reserve responsible for the Great Depression, the Great Crash of 1929? Well, first of all, the Federal Reserve knew what was going on behind the scenes. Among other things, people could buy stocks for 10% of their value. It's very similar to what happened in 2008 with with all of these securities that were that were bought. People could buy secu- stocks in, in, in the 20s, especially the late 20s, putting down only 10%. So if you wanted to buy $10,000 worth of whatever, you only had to put down $1,000. And there was much, much more, but 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 that was a big part of it. And and so this so the the market crashed in in twenty nine. But the Federal Reserve, who was the excuse that was given to the American public in in nineteen thirteen as to why the Federal Reserve was enacted, was to prevent another nineteen oh seven recession, which was very bad. And yet, just sixteen years later, nineteen thirteen to nineteen twenty nine. This stock market, this, excuse me, this Federal Reserve, with presumably the greatest minds, financial minds in the United States, allowed the stock market to crash and create a depression that adversely affected millions. And, and, and so you'd have to say to yourself, how, you know, how did that happen? And conversely, in, in the 2008 recession, that was also caused by something that happened in, in 1999, which the Federal Reserve could have prevented. The United States Congress overturned the Roosevelt-era Glass-Steagall Act. The Glass-Steagall Act clearly said that banks could not dabble in securities. It put a tight control over the banks, what they could invest in. And yet the Federal Reserve allowed Congress to take that Glass-Steagall Act in 1999 and overturn it. And that was one of the biggest reasons for the 2008 financial collapse. And so the Federal Reserve really does not have, or I should say they have very little control, or they cause, however you want to look at it, the financial collapses in this country. Much has been made of President Trump's dissatisfaction, dismay of the Federal Reserve. He's talked about how great it would be to get the United States back on the gold standard. He said it would be very difficult to do. I've even talked to some researchers who are suggesting that Trump has already made overtures to take over the Fed in a very surreptitious manner. What do you think about that? For the, for the welfare of this country, of the 350 million people that, that are here, <laughs> I say yes. I mean, the Federal Reserve literally controls this country. Again, whoever controls the money, the currency of a country, the finances of a country controls that country. The Federal Reserve and the powers behind it have controlled this country for the last 107 years. And I would applaud 
the president if that's what he did. But I don't think he has the power to do it. I, I, I have to be honest with you. All he'd have to do is say, hey, Powell, Chairman Powell, I want to attend a Federal Reserve Board meeting, something that a president or a congressman has never done in 107 years. No one has done, or at least no public servant has done. And he, he couldn't do it. So could, does he have the power to do it? I don't think he does, but I'd love it if he did. It would be magnificent to get rid of the Federal Reserve is one of the best things that could happen to this country because we could start going on the gold standard and start acting in a way that we should be acting both for ourselves and the world. So we've been talking about America's expansion, its foreign policy, the Spanish-American War, its pursuit of empire, which leads us to a particularly interesting gentleman by the name of Brigadier General Smedley Butler, a senior U.S. Marine Corps officer. He fought in both the Mexican Revolution and World War I, and he sort of blew the whistle when he wrote a book called War is a Racket. Tell me about Smedley Butler. Well, yes, Smedley Butler is is one of the keys to understanding the deep state. <clears throat> he calls it capitalism because back in in 1933 he he had or back in the 1930s he had absolutely no idea of a deep state, so he called it capitalism. But he is the key. You know, there was Audie Murphy, Alvin York, who were huge World War One war heroes, and they were legitimate war heroes. They were incredible. But so was Major General Smedley Butler. Not so much during World War I, but he served for 33 years as a U.S. Marine, as a bona fide, loyal U.S. Marine. And that's what makes him so special, because he wasn't a private who was dishonorably just discharged, who was trying to get back at the government or, or the Marines. He was a lifetime Marine of 33 years. And he, he wrote this book, which, which was totally, uh, which totally showed, uh, by the way, he was the most, dis- he was the Distinguished service, service Medal winner in 1919 and the most decorated Marine in American history by the time of his death in 1940. So this is no schlock here. I mean, he was something. And this is, I'd like to read just a little piece of, of the book, War, War is a Racket, just to give you an idea of what the deep state was in the early 1900s, what they really put together and what they've carried through to the present time. Here's what he says. I spent 33 and four months in active military service. And during that period, I spent most of my time as a high class muscle man for big business for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the national city bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the international banking house of Brown Brothers in 1902 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil 
went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was to operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. I don't think anybody since the uh, Spanish-American War has uh, illustrated as well as Smedley did as to what the deep state is and what it has been capable of for the last hundred cent, hundred years. Whatever became of uh, Smedley Butler? I know he, he, he died in 1940, but... When, when he blew the whistle like that, he surely must have raised the ire of the deep state. Why? What? Did they leave him alone? Did, did they take him out? What happened? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Alvin York and Audie Murphy became American heroes. Uh, there were movies. Gary Cooper played Alvin York. Audie Murphy, I believe, played himself uh, in a movie. <clears throat> and they were American heroes. Almost nobody heard of Smedley Butler. But no, I don't believe any attempt was made on his life, uh, although I'm not sure of that. Uh, And he just simply died. I think he ran for office, but he just died uh, in in 1940 uh, to be forgotten until somebody discovered war is a racket. All right, uh, Stephen, we're going to leave it here. And uh, next time we're going to pick up with um, the Treaty of Versailles, which would ultimately lead to World War II. We'll talk about the Cold War and uh, and then we'll get into eventually the, the assassinations of, of uh, John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King. On and on we'll go. Thank you so much I, for this. I'm there, Richard. Thank you very much. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. One tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo helps keep me pain-free, energized, and mentally focused. And I'm sleeping so much better since I started taking ESS-60 back in November. ESS-60 is the consumable form of C60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists in the 1990s. ESS-60 is a mega antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Check out the Paris study, a peer-reviewed scientific study online, where ESS-60 suspended in olive oil was fed to rats. The rats fed ESS-60 lived almost twice their normal lifespan. I can't sit here and tell you I'm gonna live to be 112, but I'm 56 and I haven't felt this youthful, energized and pain-free since I was in my 20s. ESS60 from C60 Evo. If you want to discover the benefits of this amazing miracle molecule for yourself, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link for c60evo.com. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC when ordering, and you'll receive an additional 5% off. ESS-60, the miracle molecule from C60 Evo. It's changed my life. Discover what it can do for you. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, author-researcher Colin Hall returns with an update on one of the 21st century's most puzzling unsolved mysteries, the paranormal M6 and Paris car crashes. 
Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy. Interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood? Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy. Interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood? Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.